You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. And if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. Uh, there should be some underneath your seats there, underneath maybe every four or five seats. So feel free to grab those. And First uh, Peter chapter five is where you're going to need to where you're going to need to mark. <clears throat> okay, before we get started, need to cover one family issue real quick, just for our church family. And so uh, if you were here about three Wednesdays ago, we did a family meeting. And at that family meeting, we presented a piece of property that we feel like God may be leading our church family toward. Um, so, and, and we tried to explain it, present it, do all that stuff at that family meeting. Now, if you're a covenant member of Stonegate and you have not, um, you weren't there and you haven't listened to that audio or read the notes from that, you need to do that ASAP. Like you need to do that like two weeks ago, ASAP. And so you need to make sure you get on that and prioritize that really quickly. So in, in that family meeting, we, we told you that we had the money to pay cash for the piece of property. So it's not a debt issue. We're going to pay cash for it. But he, here was really the purpose of that family meeting is we wanted to get that in front of you because we want you in on that decision. And so we want you to be praying over that. If you've got thoughts or questions or concerns, or maybe you want to affirm it, you need to let us know those things. And so uh, we tried to, to make sure our home group leaders, you, you need to talk to them. If, if you're in a home group and you've got questions, make sure you're, you're getting those questions out. If you want to get with a staff guy um, or any of the guys on kind of the board that's around that, you need to make sure that if you've got questions or whatever, that you've got those in front of the right people. And so we want you in on that. We know that this decision in many ways will determine the trajectory for our church for the foreseeable future. And so we know that needs to be bathed in prayer. We want the best decisions made on these things. And so in light of that, I just want to remind you that, that you're invited in on that. And, and if you have, if you're not in the know, you need to get in the know if you're a covenant member here. All right. So we hope that over the next uh, several weeks to, to grow more and more firm in our just where we are with that and what we feel like God is leading our church family toward. And so you need to act quickly, though. You need to, to make sure you're on the ball on that. And that's prioritized for you. OK, so uh, it's going to take us a while to get to first Peter this morning. So you need to mark that and hold your place there. And uh, and here we go. OK, so we're going to start in second Kings chapter six. I think it's going to be an appropriate lead in for us this morning. Second Kings six. It's going to be on the screen for you. You can flip there if you want. Um, if you don't want, then there it is. Here, here, here it goes. <clears throat> second Kings six, starting in verse eight, says this. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to that to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus, he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. OK, now um, to use a sports analogy, here's what's just happening. Uh, the opposite team is stealing your signals. So you've got an opposing team and they know you're, they know the play like before you run it, they know it. So this is what's happening here in this scenario. You've got Elisha, this man of God who is conveying to the people of Israel, all that the Syrians are planning. Okay. So, so this is where we pick it up. Verse 11. And the mind of the King of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. I mean, they know what we're doing before we do it. You'd be troubled too, right? This is a bad deal for them. And he called his servants together and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He thinks one of his guys are ratting him out. 
Okay, it goes on here, verse 12. And one of his servants said, it's not an us thing. It's none of us, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Now that is clearly crossing all lines right there, isn't it? That, that, is, that is across the line, verse 13. And he said, king of Syria said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And just an idea, he probably knows you're coming, right? That's going to be a little bit of a difficult task. So it was told him, behold, he is in uh, Dauphin, verse 14. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So if you can picture an entire army around the city for one man. This is, this is the picture we've got here. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of, of God rose early in the morning. So you've got the guy that he's after, his servant, Elisha's servant rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Translated, we're dead. There's a lot of them. There's two of us. They've got chariots. We've got Bibles. This is not going well for any one of us, right? Okay, he he goes on. Elisha responds to him. Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, if you're the servant, how do you even respond to that? Uh, Elisha, did you take your medication this morning? I mean, what, what is wrong with this picture here? Okay, so, so he goes on. Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said this, and this is going to be a prayer that we're going to need today. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Open his eyes that he may see. If we're going to see all of what 1 Peter 5 is saying, we're going to need God to come through on this prayer. And this is how God responds. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, can you imagine that scene? Here's why I think it's an appropriate lead-in for today. For, uh, for today is because in so many ways, we are just like this servant. So, so you were born, and, and you were born, probably, with eyes that could see. With, with eyes that could see physical things. With eyes that could see horses and chariots that have surrounded your city. But, but we were not born with the sort of eyes that could look up in the mountains and see this whole host, this whole other army of God around them. See, you were born with physical eyes that see physical things, but we are completely dependent upon God to see into the spiritual. So so maybe you could think of it this way. You were born with these five senses to see, to hear, to touch, to taste. These five senses. But, But the truth is, you need more than five senses because there's actually a thing, like it's, there's, there's actually a spiritual world. There's actually a, another world outside of this physical thing. That there is a spiritual world. So so that means that there are actually things called angels. There's actually things called demons. There's really a spiritual world out there. So so you've got angels that are spotless, sinless, would make your knees buckle if you ran into one. You've got demons who who are so deformed and distorted that they would make you buckle kind of for the opposite reason. So there's actually a spiritual world. Okay, now this is where the objections start to fly. So two objections. When you think of this spiritual world, two objections. Here's the first one, that it's primitive. 
So when we talk spiritual things, devil, like first Peter introduces it like this, that you actually have an adversary, the devil, that's spiritual world. And what our modern kind of 21st century um, ears, when they hear that, there's this primitive sense that, okay, I, I get that people three or 400 years ago believed that, but not us. There's a sense in which it's primitive. So if you think about what happened in history, two to 300 years ago, we endured this thing called the Enlightenment. And it affected everyone in the West. Like you, in some part, have been influenced by this. And so here's what happened during the Enlightenment. Reason dethroned God. So for you to believe something, you had to put it in a test tube and test it. Everything became predicated on the scientific method. So if if you're going to believe it, it's got to be scientifically proved. This is the issue. Okay, now now here's the problem with that. And and by the way, some of us in the room aren't just influenced by that. We're actually convinced by it. We're actually convinced that if we're going to believe it, we've got to put it in a test tube and put the scientific method upon it. Okay, now now here's the, the... kind of my rebuttal and slash, let me just encourage you with this. If that's you, if you've been convinced by that, I just encourage you to consider the fact that the scientific method, this is the shortcoming of it. It can't test the spiritual. You can't bottle that stuff up and put it in a test tube. You can't put it under a microscope. And that doesn't make it not real. See, maybe the problem is our senses like our abilities to see and feel and, and test. Maybe the problem is, is that our senses are deficient to take in everything that is real. Are you seeing that? So this idea that it's primitive, it, it doesn't hold in that regard. And, and just on the other side of this, I think that there's a sense in which um, this modern mood toward the spiritual of it being primitive I think that's a plot and ploy of Satan that he's actually pleased with. In, in his book, uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is one of the best books kind of peering into this issue. Uh, listen to what he says as it relates to this idea of being primitive. And this is a, a more experienced demon talking to an inexperienced demon about a person that they're trying to go after. And the experienced demon says this, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping uh, the patient, that's the person, in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. So so I think that there's a sense in which Satan would be really pleased that that since we can't believe in something with red tights, we can't believe in in, in him. So one objection is that it's primitive. The other objection is that it's not prevalent in the Bible. And that could not be more false. When you open the page of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you see evidence of a spiritual, supernatural world. It's all through the pages of scripture. And so if you go Genesis chapter one, you've got God that's spiritual creating a physical planet. In Genesis chapter three, you're introduced to Satan. He's the crafty serpent. Right. And so if you just start reading forward, you've got a spiritual world on underneath every page of the scripture. If you get to the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, think, think the birth of Jesus. He was born a virgin. That's supernatural. OK, think about his life in, in uh, Matthew and, and Luke four. he was tempted by Satan. 
That's supernatural. Think about his ministry. He spent much of his ministry casting out demons. Think about his death. At his death, he said that he could uh, call on a legion of angels if he wanted to. Think about his resurrection. He was actually buried in a tomb three days dead and rose from the dead. That's a supernatural spiritual world that we're talking about. All throughout the pages of scripture. I think it would be right to even um, maybe take that one step further and say, if you discount a spiritual world, you discount the words of Jesus. It's all throughout the pages of scripture. You can't believe in Jesus and not believe in a supernatural world, a spiritual world. Okay, so those are the objections, but there's also some dangers when we have this conversation. When we talk about a spiritual world, it's associated with, with I think, two primary dangers that C.S. Lewis does a good job in his preface to the screw tape letters um, in describing. He, he says it this way. <clears throat> there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So maybe you could uh, summarize it like this. One error is that we get fanatical. So we are looking for a demon behind every bush. And not just one, but like 30 of them in there. So, so we're, we're on the hunt for them. I, I remember reading a story about... Um, David Pallison, he's an author and counselor. He was talking about this one couple that he was counseling. And the lady would, would have fit into this fanatical framework here. I mean, she's behind everything. She's looking for the demon. So at one point, he recounts the story of her, her, her uh, toaster went out. She's trying to cast demons out of the toaster. I mean, it's plug the thing in. Let's try that first, right? I mean, it's, it's crazy. And then um, she is fighting with her husband. So she's always trying to cast these demons of anger and pride and jealousy out of her husband. And, and you can predict what probably happens there. The marriage implodes. And he kind of comments to kind of sum all that up about Satan peering in through the window um, with, with great joy, laughing at their over preoccupation with these things. Um, so you've got one side that's fanatical, but you've got the other side. And this is the danger I think many of us in this room probably fall into is that we are very forgetful. That the Bible is going to say we have a real adversary, like a real enemy that's plotting your ruin and destruction. And yet it doesn't factor into our daily life at all. It doesn't factor into our daily thought life. We're, we're very forgetful of it. We're not fanatic. We, we, we would probably affirm that these things are true, but it just doesn't register with us on a daily basis. It doesn't sink in that we've actually got an enemy that today is planting and employing for and plotting for your ruin and destruction. So if you want to think about maybe a good way to, uh, to keep these two in tension, not being or, uh, in intention, not being overly forgetful, but not being fanatical. Maybe this illustration would help. It's imperfect, but hopefully helpful. If you can picture yourself as a quarterback, I know it's a stretch for many of us in the room, right? And so you get the snap and you drop back and you're going to throw the ball down the field. So as a Christian, your, your job is to move the mission of God down the field, to be active in your role in the mission of God. So you drop back, you got the ball, you're about to throw it down the field. And, and when you drop back, you're not primarily looking at the defense. You're primarily looking at the offense. You're primarily looking at your receivers who you're about to throw the ball to, who you're working in concert with. So your, your primary intention, your primary focus is on the offense. But in your peripheral vision, you keep the defensive line who's trying to kill you, 
right? You keep them in your sights. You keep the defensive backs who are trying to intercept the ball. You, you keep them in your peripheral vision. And I think this is a good way to think about it. We're not to be overly obsessed with the defense. We're to be obsessed with moving the mission of God forward. But in our peripheral vision, we're to know that there's more than just an offense on the field. There's also a defense on the field. There's also an opposition out there. Okay, so, um, so first thing we've got to get, Second Kings, there is a spiritual world. Here's the second thing, the kind of follow-up thing from that, is there's not just a spiritual world, there's also a thing called a spiritual war that's happening. That we're actually in the midst of a spiritual war. Okay, now, now Paul's going to make this very plain in Ephesians 6, where he's going to say that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is a real, authentic war going on. It's not flesh and blood. It's not a people-oriented thing. It's a spiritually-oriented thing. There is actually kind of this um, 2 Kings 6 thing going on right now over your life over my life, over your marriage, over your kids, in your family, at your workplace, that that sort of a scene is actually happening everywhere. And and so when you think about spiritual warfare, it's the clash of two kingdoms. So you've got the the unseen and expanding kingdom of God that is colliding with this unseen and crumbling kingdom of Satan. See, if you want to think about history, history is really the narrative of those two kingdoms colliding. Okay, so it's the clash of two kingdoms. Um, This spiritual war, this conflict is also very personal. You're in the conflict. Do you know that? This involves you. That your life is lived out on the battlefield where these two kingdoms collide. That's where you do life. It's where I do life. It's where your marriage is, my marriage, your workplace, my... It's all there. We are living on the battlefield where these two kingdoms collide. It's very personal. It doesn't matter what, where you come from, what you believe, where you're going. You are on this battlefield. You're a part of, of something much bigger than you. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he describes it like this. There is no neutral ground in the universe. There's no neutral ground. There's no place you can escape this. He says every square inch and every split second are claimed by God, kingdom of God, and are counterclaimed by the kingdom of Satan. See, it's personal. Your life is lived there. All of our lives are lived here. And and let me remind you that in this conflict, the consequences are eternal. The eternal destinies of moms and dads, grandpas and grandmas, little boys and little girls is at stake in this conflict. But, but here's one of the problems I think a lot of us have is, is this conflict is really misunderstood. So when we think spiritual warfare, here's what happens. We naturally gravitate to the extreme and to the extraordinary. We, that we naturally go there. But think about what, what the first, uh, book of First Peter, think about the context for, for spiritual warfare that it gives. In First Peter, you don't see one sort of crazy sci-fi scene where a demon's being casted out of a person. Not one scene is, of that is in First Peter. Do you know what you have in First Peter? Husbands who are trying to, to pastor and lead their families. Wives who are trying to come under that authority and that leadership. You've got people struggling against pride and for humility. You've got people who are in the crucible of suffering. Christians in the crucible of pain and, and suffering. And they're trying to keep their faith in God. That, that's what you've got in First Peter. You've got Christians trying to actively grow in holiness and brotherly love. 
First Peter places spiritual warfare in the context of your daily life, your everyday living. You trying to pastor in your family, you trying to um, grow in holiness, you trying to do all that is the context for spiritual warfare. It all happens right there. That is the normal everyday means of where this battle is lived and how it's lived out. Okay, so so here's what this is going to mean in part. That every sin and every choice and every problem that you have, there is a sense in which there is more to that problem, more to that sin than meets the eye. And we need to grow in an awareness of that. That there is more than meets the eye to that sin and that problem, that issue. And maybe you could describe it like this and kind of give substance to that like this. That, that every sin, that this war, this conflict, this spiritual war, all of that is battled on three fronts. On three fronts. So um, the, the Bible is going to describe it like this. And the Puritans, I think, did a really good job of, of laying this out. That for every person, there is an inward component of this war called the flesh. There is an outward component of this war called uh, the, the world. And there is an upward component called the devil. That, that our battle is on these three fronts. And you see it um, clearly in Ephesians 2, where Paul says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to say this. Here's our problem. That we're following the course of this world. We're f- that's, that's the world issue, that front. We're following the prince of the power of the air. That's the, the devil front. And then he goes on to say that, that we're living in the passions of the flesh, the passions of the body and the mind, the flesh. That's the inward front. So, so our war is in three fronts. So let me kind of break this down and kind of describe each of these. So the first front is this, the flesh. It's this inward component. And so when you think about the flesh, the Bible uses the word uh, in a couple of different ways. One way the Bible might use the word flesh is to describe like your body, your skin, the thing that covers you. Okay, and in some ways, and sometimes the Bible uses flesh to describe that. But when Paul uses it, he, he typically use it, uses it in a very distinct way to describe our deformed and distorted inner inclinations. So if you want a definition of the flesh, it, it would go like this. The flesh is your inner desires that have been deformed and distorted by sin. Paul uses it in a distinct way to describe this whole thing in us. It's this part of us that is warring against God. It's the part of us that is at war with God, that is resistant to God, that is rebellious toward God. Okay, now to understand the flesh, we've got to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. When God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were born without deformed and distorted inner inclinations. But in Genesis 3, when they sinned, everything broke including those, those inner inclinations. So, so now we've got a problem with the flesh. Now it's distorted and deformed. And the effects of that first sin, Genesis 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, the effects of that first sin are far-reaching and universal. Okay, universal in the sense that it affects everyone. That when you are born, when a person is born now, post-Genesis 3, we are born with deformed and distorted inner inclinations. We are born with the problem with the flesh. Okay, you're born that way. That, and parents, you know this. If you're a parent, you know this is true. You do not have to teach your kid to talk back to you, do you? That comes perfectly natural. You don't have to teach them to steal, to, to fight and chew and bite to get their way. You don't have to teach them any of those things. They come by that perfectly natural because the effects of that first sin are universal. It affects them when they're born. 
but they're also far-reaching. Okay, far-reaching in the sense that it affects every part of every person. Okay, now this is what theologians call total depravity. Sin affecting every part of every person. Total depravity does not mean that you're the worst you could possibly be. I love what one old theologian said. We all have room for deprovement. We, we can all get a little bit worse, right? So, so total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could possibly be. It means that every crack and crevice of your soul has been shot through with sin. Every crack and crevice. So, so when we're born, there will never be a decision that we make, a feeling that we have, a thought that we have. There will never be an inclination of our heart that is not shot through with sin. This is what total depravity means. Okay, now here is the good news of the gospel. Let, let me put it in a, in a metaphor from a guy named Jerry Bridges. When he's describing the flesh and the gospel and how these things kind of interplay, he uses uh, this uh, analogy for it. He says, picture your heart when you're born as um, a territory. So your heart's a territory and it's got a governing ruler over it. And when you're born, the, the reigning ruler in your heart and in your soul is the flesh. It's these sinful, distorted desires. So when you're born, the reigning master that you have is the flesh. Okay, so, so everything you do is shot through completely with sin. Reigning master. When you become a Christian, here's what happens to you. God comes into your life, invades this enemy territory, and he dethrones this, this ruling master, the flesh. He dethrones it, and then God grabs the reins of your heart, and he jumps into the throne place of your heart. He's now the new reigning master. This is the good news of the gospel. That when you place your faith in Jesus and God saves you, a new reigning master occupies your heart, occupies the capital of your territory. He is the new reigning master. Okay, so here's the good news. When you become a Christian, you've got a new reigning master. Here's the bad news. That old reigning master of the flesh, God did not destroy him. He just dethroned him. Good news, he's dethroned. Sobering news, he's not destroyed. So, so the flesh retreats back into the jungles of your heart where now it wages this guerrilla warfare. Have you ever been attacked by the flesh by crazy desires that you're like, where did that come from? Where did that thought right there? Where did that or where did that come from? That is the guerrilla warfare that is waged by that dethroned enemy, the flesh. Okay, do you see the, do you see the issue? So the good news of the gospel is you've got a new reigning master. The, the sobering news is that old reigning master, the flesh, he still remains in you. The, the good news is he's been dethroned. The sobering news is he's not yet destroyed. This is why in James 4, um, James is going to tell us, you know why you fight Christians? You know why you fight? Because your passions, the flesh inside of you is at war with the spirit. This is Galatians 5. The flesh and the spirit are at war. This is Romans 7, where Paul says, I keep doing these things that I don't want to do. Okay, this is that flesh that has been dethroned, waging that guerrilla warfare. Okay, so that's the flesh. This is front one, this inward battle. But we also have this outward battle, this second front with the world. Okay, so when you think about the world, the, the Bible could use the word world in one of three ways. Here's one way. It could use it to describe God's crea creation, the universe. Okay, so that's one way the Bible could use the word world. Another way it could use it is to describe people. This is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. That's talking about people. 
Okay, so God, for God so loved the world. Another way he could use it is in a negative sense, or the Bible could use it is in a negative sense. This is 1 John 2.15, when John tells us, don't love the world or the things in the world. So in this way, it's a negative thing. When it's described in this negative sense, um, one way you can think about this, it, when it talks about the world in this negative sense, is it's collective godlessness. So think about people who have deformed and distorted desires. So now you put them in cities and villages and towns and, and you put them together where now you have collective distorted desires. Okay, that's the world. When you collect people together in these sinful desires, you put them into a, a city, they form a culture, and you've got a culture that now is set up against God, at war with God. That, that's the world that, that First John is talking about. Okay, so here's a definition of the world. It's the prevailing worldviews and values of a culture that promote a pattern of life that's contrary to God's will. The prevailing worldviews and values of a culture that promote a pattern of life that's contrary to God's will. So we have this inward problem, the flesh, that, that is exploited by this outward problem, the world. So there's a way in which the world um, feeds and strengthens and kind of cements in our internal problems. That it contributes to it in that way. And see, this is where Ephesians 2 is a real problem for us. Because it says that we're following the course of the world. That, that this is our leader. That we're taking our cues from the world. Okay, now let me press this one step further and define worldliness. So the world is this collective godliness it's the, these prevailing worldviews and patterns that set themselves up against God. Worldliness is when we adopt personally those prevailing worldviews and patterns that, that run contrary to the will of God. Worldliness is when God is de-godded from our life. It's when we um, would live normal, everyday life, marriage, family, uh, parenting, work, and, and we never include God in on that. This is worldliness. It's living your life apart from God. Worldliness is, is the result, or it, you know you, you've gone there, when the prevailing pattern of the culture is more normal to you than God's pattern. So when, when you think marriage, this is when you know worldliness is set in. When, when normal is culture and abnormal is God's view. Finances. When normal is our cultural perspective and abnormal is God's perspective. So you know worldliness is set in when the cultural's pattern for life is normal and God's pattern for life is abnormal. Okay, now here's the good news in the gospel for, for us in the room. Is that when God saves us, this is what he does. 1 Peter 2, 9. He transfers us. He brings us out of the kingdom of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of light. This is good news for us, right? This is Colossians 1.13. That we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of God. Okay, that is great news. Now, here's the sobering news of the gospel. That although you are now a citizen of heaven, you have been transferred, that the sobering news is that God leaves you to live the rest of your life in this world. But that's the sobering news. And this world is going to fight against you. It's going to finagle. It's going to press and pull. It's going to blast you and bombard you with a million anti-God messages trying to de-God your life. This, this is why C.J. Mahaney um, says this. Today, the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals, you and I, Christians, 
the greatest challenging uh, challenge facing us is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. The greatest challenge facing you is seduction by the world. That subtly and quietly, your life would be de-godded. The way that you would think about things fits the pattern of the world and not God's pattern for life. So, so this is the, the second kind of front that we do battle on. But, but there's one more front, and that's the devil. That's the third front. And welcome to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're finally there. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse 8. We've got this third front called the devil, okay? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. First Peter is introducing us, or Peter is introducing us to the devil. Okay, so we need, to, we need to get our mind wrapped around this third front of the war. Who is the devil? What is the devil? So let's just walk through a quick theology of the devil. So here's the first thing. His identity. When you think of, of the devil or this adversary, you need to know who it is. Right? So, so his identity. Peter calls him an adversary. That's a legal sort of a courtroom word. It would be used to describe the prosecutor. Okay, so if you, you maybe you could think of it this way, that Jesus is your mediator and he is your defendant before God and Satan is, is your accuser. He is your prosecutor before God. This is why Revelation 12 describes him as the accuser of the brethren, right? So, so you've got that picture of Satan. He is the adversary. He is the accuser. Okay, so when you think about the scriptures, here's the teaching of the Bible on Satan is that Satan is a supernatural, spiritual force, or personal force of tremendous evil and power. So a supernatural, personal force of tremendous evil and power. So think about the powerful piece. Think about the, the metaphors the Bible uses to describe Satan. So in Revelation, it's the great red dragon. I don't know what that is, but it sounds mean to me, all right? So you got a great red dragon. In um, Matthew 12, he is the strong man. In 2 Corinthians 4, he is the god of this world. In Ephesians 2, he's the prince of the power of the air. All of those would, would signify and help clue us in to this enemy is really, 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 really powerful. And he's also really, 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 really evil. He's tremendously evil as well. So this is why John 8 is going to call him the father of lies and that he was a murderer from the beginning. So if you think about um, Revelation 12, this is where we get kind of the background of Satan. Satan was originally an angel. He rebelled against God. He, he wanted to be God. He wanted to set himself up against God, wanted to be independent and autonomous from God. So he sets himself up against God, rebels against God and leaves and, and leads one third of the angels in that rebellion against God who are now demons. And in punishment of that, God cast them down to earth where now they carry on their kind of plots and ploys against God. Okay, this is Satan. If you want a picture of pride, it's Satan. If you want a picture of, of lust, it's Satan. If you want a picture of everything that is anti-God, Satan is your picture. Okay, this is identity. His attributes. Satan is not God and he's not on par with God. So he's not equal in power and just kind of opposite in purity. That is not Satan. 
Okay, so when you think attributes, I think this is a good thing for you to think. Satan's powerful, but, but he's not all-powerful. Only God is all-powerful. There is a sense in which Satan is always on God's leash. So he's active, but he cannot be everywhere at once. Only God can be everywhere at once. So you've got one Satan can be in one place at one time, and you've got an organized workforce of demons, the Bible would call them, who are everywhere else doing everything else. So he's active, but he cannot be everywhere at once. Although he can know many things, he is not all-knowing. Only God is all-knowing. Satan knows only what he hears. Okay, so do you get the picture? Satan is created. He's not, he's not on par with God. He's a created being who, just like every other created thing, is dependent upon God the Creator. Okay, his aim. That was his attributes now, his aim. For, look at First Peter uh, ver, chapter 5, verse 8. Peter gives it to us. His aim is to devour. Do you see that word? To devour. Okay, that word is uh, the word that would be used for drinking something down. Okay, so, so that is not, that is not, I'm going to maul them and then scratch them once. That's, I'm going to chew them up, I'm going to crush them, and then I'm going to swallow them whole. Okay, this is the picture. When he says devour, that, that, that's meaning something. So when you think of the aim of Satan, Satan hates God and he hates the people of God. He has set himself up to defame everything about God and to destroy the people of God. This is the aim of Satan, to devour, to, to eternally ruin people. Okay, th- this, is, this is the aim of Satan. Okay, and then his strategy. L- notice, notice what Peter says that Satan is doing. It doesn't say that Satan is walking around. It doesn't say that Satan is um, strolling around. It doesn't say that he's running around. What does it say? He's prowling. Okay, that, that's, that tells you something about Satan, that he is prowling. Um, I think if you were to use the words of Paul in, uh, in Ephesians 6, he might communicate the same thing this way, that he is scheming, that he has schemes, that, that he's a strategist, that he has subtle strategies to lure you in and to devour you. And um, this is why in Genesis 3, when Satan is introduced, do you remember how he's introduced? As the most crafty beast of the field. Okay, when it says crafty, that does not mean that Satan is an expert scrapbooker. That's not the point. When it says crafty, here's what it means. That he is an expert killer. Are we seeing that? That he is subtle in his schemes and he is an expert at slaying people, devouring people. Okay, so I want to tie together for you how the world, the flesh, and the devil work in concert for your ruin and demise. Um, the Puritans, Thomas uh, Brooks, was really helpful in this, and he used um, a, an analogy from fishing to describe these three things and how they fit together. And so he described it like this, that the flesh, your flesh, your distorted and deformed desires, they form the hook. So, so here... Your flesh or your deformed desires, they make you catchable. See, if if your desires were always for God all of the time, you would never have a problem with Satan. You would never be catchable. You, You would never be devoured because you wouldn't be catchable to be devoured. But it's your sinful desires, these distorted and deformed inner inclinations of our heart that make us catchable. It's these deformed desires that, that form hooks. That, that make you catchable. Okay, so, so your flesh is the hook. The world is the bait. So, so the world is the bait that goes onto the hook 
that actually makes it enticing. See, the, 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 the world in this way gives you opportunity to sin. The, the world is what enables sin, strengthens sin, submit or uh, kind of cements the, that in, deformed internal inclinations in you. Okay, this is the role of the flesh. It's the, or the, the world. It's the bait that goes onto the hook. Okay, now think about what Satan does now. Satan is the skillful fisherman who takes the appropriate bait from the world and puts it on your hook to actually make it enticing for you to bite. Do you see how these two things work together? He is the expert fisherman who takes the hook that you provide that makes you catchable. On that hook, he puts the perfect bait that you're going to be enticed by. Okay, so now think about the purpose of bait. In one sense, bait hides the hook. And you know why many of us um, bite sin? It's because we really can't see the hook. We think we can do it cost-free. That is never the case. You know that, right? Sin always has a hook in it. It will always cost you. So, so think about the next purpose of bait. It not only hides the hook, but it also makes it enticing to bite. So see, Satan is not, he is not partial to any one bait. He'll give you whatever bait. He's partial to the bait that you'll bite. Are you seeing that? So, so if, if, if your bait is the, uh, let's just say it is the um, comfort, right? He'll just give you a comfortable life. If, if that's your bait, he'll put that bait out there to, to, to entice a bite from you every day, in any time of the day. Let's just say yours is the, uh, let's say you're a guy in the room and, and your bait is the, the, the supermodel. Then he will provide the bait. It could be a secretary. It could be a neighbor. It could be a friend. He'll provide the bait, put that bait on the hook and entice you with it. Let's say you're a lady in here and your bait is, I need a husband that's 40 pounds lighter and a little more respectful. Then he'll give you that guy. He'll put that guy on your hook and entice you to bite it. See, he's not partial to the bait. He just wants the bait you'll bite. And he is the skillful fisherman who, who grabs that perfect bait for you, puts it on your hook that you provide to entice it. Do you see how that works? Do you see how the ploys of Satan work in your life? How the world, the flesh, and the devil all come together to plot your ruin and destruction. Are we following that? This is the subtle schemes of Satan. And do you know what's true for some of us in the room? Right now, our mouth is open. Saliva just building as we're looking at some bait that Satan has provided for us. And just know this, that as soon as we bite, here's what Satan does. He sets the hook and that's when we realize that hook has a big barb on it. You can't just wiggle off of that hook. And he begins to reel you in your marriage in, your family in, your parenting in, your reputation in, the the fame and name of God in. And when he reels you in, he fillets you and devours you. You see how this works? This is the scheme of Satan. I want want you to see the destiny of of Satan, the destiny of the devil. Um, It's going to be on the screen for you. This is Revelation 20. I just want you to see what the future holds for the devil. Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released um, from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together 
uh, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Now, I have no idea what all that means. It's a little crazy, but here's the most important thing for you to get. They surrounded the city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And there will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, there is a day looming on the horizon for the devil where he will be cast into that thing where he'll be eternally destroyed. That, that day is coming. See, maybe you could picture it like this. There was a moment on the cross in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In that moment of the cross, God dealt Satan a decisive death blow. It's a mortal wound, but he's not dead yet. And then when we look forward to Revelation 20, we know there's a looming day on the horizon where the future destiny of Satan will be sealed and an eternal and endless torment. That's the, the future destiny of Satan, right? This is where it's going. And in light of this, here's what it creates in Satan. It creates a lot of desperation. So in this way, he's very desperate, isn't he? So think about this. He, he has been mortally wounded. He, he knows on the horizon he is going to be eternally ruined. But you know where you and I live? We live between the times, between the cross and Revelation 20. So do you know what that makes Satan for us? He's not just a roaring lion. He is a wounded lion that has been backed into the corner and and he's crazy and he comes out with a vengeance. See, if you want a picture for how Satan operates in the world, think kamikaze pilot, one way mission. This is Satan's deal. Think of a suicide bomber. His goal, he knows he's dead. His goal is to kill and devour as many people as possible. This is the sort of desperation that our enemy has. Okay, now in light of that, we get to the two commands in 1 Peter. Two commands in 1 Peter 8 and 9 here. Okay, now now hear these commands. In light of that, Peter's got something to warn us with. It's in light of that, now he tells us this in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be alert. See, it's in light of the fact that you have a real enemy plotting your ruin and destruction, that Peter says, you've got to be alert in light of that. You've got to be aware of that. If, if I were to tell you today that when you walk outside, there's going to be 10 lions out there waiting to kill people. They're hungry. They're just waiting for people to, to maul and, and devour. Would you walk out there like you're on a Sunday afternoon stroll? And you know, that's how many of us live life. Like we're on a Sunday afternoon stroll, half asleep. And Peter is reminding us that there's actually lions out there. He's wounded. He's desperate. His aim is to devour and to destroy as many people as possible. And now you need to live in light of that. You need to live aware of that. You need to be alerted to that. See, and here, here's the truth for everyone in the room. Do you know that you are one disastrous decision from just destroying your life? Do you know that? See, men, you are one decision away from destroying everything. You are one decision away at your workplace with that lady. One decision away from ruining everything, from destroying your family, from Satan setting the hook, reeling you in, and devouring everything. One decision, everyone in the room, one decision away from that. And you've got an enemy that's plotting and planning for that one decision. 
So Peter is saying, in light of that, you need to wake up every day aware, alert, sober-minded. This could be the day when the bait is given to you with the hook in it. This could be your day for that. When I read this passage, I can't help but kind of have a flashback to Luke 22. When Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that you won't fail. See, for some of us in the room, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, and that day is coming for you quickly. And, and I just, I, I have this fear, and this is really the angst of the morning. I have this fear that many of us are half asleep like Peter. We're unaware and inattentive. And so we look up, and, and Peter's denied Jesus three times in a matter of moments after that. So Peter's saying, you, you've got to be aware. You've got to be alert. Some of us right now, our mouth is wide open. The bait is right in front of us. And Satan has our ruin and destruction in his mind. I mean, our mouths are open right now. Like we're about to bite. Wake up. Be alert. Be sober-minded. And, and then he tells us to resist. Do you see that? Resist him firm in the faith. Paul's language on this in Ephesians 6 is you've got to put on the armor and you have to stand and stand firm. Like you've got to hold your ground here. So, so Peter says to resist him. And then you see the next statement after that, resist him. How, how do you resist him? You stand firm in the faith. That, that's how you resist him. That you've actually got to believe in the promises of God for you. Can, can I just remind you of this? The gospel is not just good news in the sense that it saves you from the penalty of sin. It's good, it's, it's good news because actively, like right now today, it saves you from the present power of sin in your life. It saves you from the plots and poise of Satan. See, the, the gospel is it's not just good news back then. It's actually good news now when your marriage crumbles. It's actually great news now when, when you're dealing with a difficult person. It's actually great news now when you lose your job. It's actually great news now when you're struggling financially. It's actually great news now when you failed for the 400th time in lust. It's actually great news now in every situation of your life. And, and Peter says, if you want to resist, if you want to stand, here, here's how you do that. You have got to believe the promises of God. All that God has promised and pledged himself to be for you because of the work of Jesus for you. You've got to believe these things. You've got to allow these things to soak deeply into your soul. You, you've got to get those things in there. You've got to believe them. See, underneath every one of our physical problems lies this issue, belief in the gospel or disbelief in it. So Peter's saying, if you want to stand here, here's what you've got to do. You've got to actually believe all that God has promised and pledged to be for you. And then here comes the promise. You see it? Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I, I love this view of God, the God of all grace. That's, that's what God is, the God of all grace. And in his grace, it says that he has called you. If you're a Christian, he's done this radical work in your heart to make you receptive to him, to make you want him, to make you responsive to him. He's called you. And here is the great news of the gospel. Regardless of what Satan plans and plots against you, here's the promise of God. That he will restore you. Do you know that? That, that he'll restore you. Um, that, that word is used for mending nets that have been torn. It's also used like in a medical sense when your arm is broken, resetting bones. 
I think there would be a sense in which God is telling you in here, I'm going to restore you. Every bone that has been crushed and broken by Satan, there will be a day that I reset that bone and heal that bone. That, that day is coming for you. Maybe you could think of it this way. Do you know the worst thing Satan could do to you? You know, if you're a Christian, you know what the worst thing is? Kill you. That's the worst thing. But you know what God promises and pledges to do on top of that? To restore everything that he would break. Isn't that great news? The worst thing he could do is kill you. And God is promising, I'll restore everything. The, the shalom of Genesis 1 and 2, I, I'll give that back to you. It's, it's all coming back. He says, I'll restore you. I'll confirm you. There are a million verdicts that, this, that people on this planet place over your life. Loser, unlovely, never lovable. A million verdicts. You know that there will be a verdict one day for every Christian that goes like this, well done. And in that day, that will be the only verdict that really matters. That he'll confirm you, that he'll strengthen you. Um, there will be a day when your body breaks down and betrays you. But there will also be a day where God will strengthen you. He's going to give you a resurrected body that's perfect. And it says that he'll establish you. That any sort of position and privilege that the plots and ploys of Satan have grabbed from you, robbed from you, God is saying there will be a day where I will reestablish those things. And you know what this should make us do? It should make us sing along with Peter the last phrase in verse 11. Do you see it? When we think about these promises of God over the top of every ploy of Satan, it should make us say and sing this with Peter, verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. I want to give you a second to sit in that. And the things that were helpful, just praying that God would submit those things, that the Spirit of God would imprint those upon you, and the things that weren't helpful and confusing, that God would wipe those away this morning. <clears throat> I want to just pray over you that the God of all grace will give you the grace this morning to be sober-minded. He would give you the grace this morning to be alert. That he'd give you the grace this morning to stand and resist. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a real work of grace in our hearts to do that. I'm just praying that God would do that this morning. Everyone in the room, one disastrous decision away from destruction. Oh my God, help us come alive to this. See this. Live in light of the fact that there are roaming lions prowling around seeking to devour you. That we would wake up with this awareness. We would wake up every day knowing today could be when the plot and ploys of Satan come to fruition. 
That, that we would wake up knowing that today the flesh is actively waging war against you. It's making you catchable. That these deformed and distorted desires in you were dethroned but not destroyed. And they provide hooks in your life. And as the world provides this bait for you, and, and the perfect bait comes on your hook as Satan, the master fisherman, to takes what would be enticing to you and puts it before you. Just remember that, that that bait has a hook with a barb in it. And when Satan sets that hook, begins reeling, there, there's no getting off in that moment. And for those in the room that, that you're kicking the tires on this thing, that you're still on the peripheral edge, just kind of looking at Jesus and um, asking questions about him, here's the great news of the gospel is that when God saves a person, when a person looks to God and says, God, I trust and treasure you, save me. God God is abundantly merciful to do that. Today, abundantly merciful. And and when God saves and rescues, here's what he does. He dethrones those sinful desires. So now for the first time, you can actually say no to them. He, He dethrones them. He delivers you from the domain of darkness from the world and transfers you into the kingdom of his son. So so if you've never had that moment where you've responded in faith to Jesus, may this be that moment for you. When you you pledge allegiance and you join the team of God Almighty who who wins in the end. And so God, I I pray that... um, You'd help us see. You'd help us see these things. God, I pray that you would give us an awareness and an alertness and a sober-mindedness to our life. God, that you would give us the grace to stand and resist. That that you would give us grace to believe in in your promises. That that you will one day confirm. You, You will one day restore. You will one day strengthen. You will one day establish. God, God, help us see that the worst that Satan can do is kill us. And and that your promises far outweigh that. So God, will you, by your grace, help us in this? By your grace, will you help us? It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.